Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better discussion and some accountability. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really the project is aimed at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet been able to get into the Word of God. I think in church a lot of times we encourage people to read the Bible, but then we don't give them a plan and we don't give them any help with that. And so that's what the Word Diet is aiming at so that we can really help people read the Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org, and we have Zoom groups ongoing if you're interested. For the radio show, we're in the book of Genesis, a great book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. Please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. On last week's show, we covered the end of Abraham's life and in chapter 24, the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca. That show, as well as all the other shows, are available on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. On this week's show, we're going to do the other significant story in Isaac's life by himself, and that's with Abimelech in chapter 26. And then we're going to back up to chapter 25 and pick up another story about Isaac, but really it's about Jacob and Esau moving forward. A pretty famous story, so hope you enjoy today's show. Lord, be with us today as we dive into your word. Help us to understand who you are uh, and who we are, Lord, and what you want from us and for us. Uh, Help us understand and apply what we're going to talk about today. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station and the show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 26 today, and we're uh, having the encounter between Isaac and Abimelech, very similar to chapter 20, where Abraham dealt with an Abimelech. And if I were titling this, I would call it Dig Another Well. And you might be asking, why do we keep jumping around in the text? And it's because the middle of Genesis actually has a number of interesting choices about how how to present the material. I'm going with 26, and then we'll back up to 25, For one thing, this episode occurs before chapter 25 and the famous birthright story that we'll use to wrap up today. Having the twins with them would have made the deception far more difficult, and they're not mentioned. So we know from the text that this occurs later. Uh, This story is between the birthright story and the blessing story, the two far more famous stories in this part of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau's life. And so it's, in a way, a literary tool to stretch out the story and the resolution of the birthright and the tension that will be introduced back in chapter 25. So I'm going to go ahead and cover these in chronological order. I think the big thing that jumps out, if you've been following along with us, is the parallels between Abraham and Isaac in chapters 12 and 20. And it's put here to emphasize the inheritance of chapter 25's blessing from Abraham. And it's put between to illustrate Jacob's two struggles in gaining that inheritance and blessing. And it also invites, really begs for, comparisons between Abraham and Isaac. And here it's a look at Isaac on the world stage. We talked at great length about Abraham and how impressive he was in that regard. How will Isaac look? What about the transmission of faith between Abraham and Isaac? That's been a key consideration. The other thing that I think that's interesting here is that chapters 25 and 27 are a family struggle, but chapter 26 in the middle of those is a political struggle. And both of those are important. I think we look at our family stuff and we don't realize the political, social 
cultural implications of those actions. And that's certainly true for Abraham, and it will be true for Isaac as well. And then I think broadly we would say Isaac really is quite limited compared to Abraham. Uh, In terms of the text, that's really the case. He only gets one chapter, one significant story. He never leaves Canaan. He never has great adventure. He tries to imitate Abraham here and largely fails, but he still flourishes and ultimately succeeds in both realms. And so we end up with two very different pictures, and Abraham, who's the stereotypical great man, and Isaac, who is a much more modest uh, man, or has at least a much more modest life, but yet the faith continues, and he has a faithful life of his own. The other comparison that's begged here is between Abraham and Abimelech back in chapter 20. If transmission of the faith is a big deal, we want to look at how Abraham has transmitted his faith to Isaac, and we want to see how Abimelech has transmitted his faith to his son and his people. It's been about 90 years between the episodes here, and so the reference to Abimelech, it's not the same person. Abimelech is a dynasty or title, sort of like we would see with Caesar or Pharaoh. All right, so let's dig into the text. Chapter 26, verses 1 through 6. Now there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in the land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Okay, so in verse 1, we're told the context here is a famine. So this explicitly ties it to Abraham's famine that he experienced in chapter 12 in Egypt and with Pharaoh. And so implicitly, it connects it to his response there, for example, in chapter 12, verse 13. Also interesting that this is a story about food, and it's in between the two famous stories about food. Chapter 25, verse 30, we'll talk about later today, where Esau is famished and sells the birthright for a bowl of soup. And then chapter 27, the deception of the blessing is also built around food. So just interesting that food such plays such a prominent um, role in these stories. Verse 2, the instructions not to go to Egypt, to stay in the promised land. This is the first time that God addresses Isaac. When we're looking at the patriarchs, it's interesting that Abraham by choice and Jacob later by command are okay to go to Egypt They're commanded to go when Isaac is commanded to stay put. Borgman notes that Isaac has his life stage managed by God and by his matchmaking father. Isaac is much more passive and is told to stay near home. Is he not able to handle the difficulties or temptations of Egypt? We're not told. We were given a hint at something back in chapter 24 that Abraham was quite concerned that Isaac not go anywhere to look for a wife. So maybe there's something here that this is the optimal approach for Isaac, given God's command and the evident blessing. And maybe there's something here about his temperament and his character. In any case, verse 6, he has unquestioning obedience, as with Abraham. The difference is that where Abraham goes where God tells him to go, Isaac does not go where I, where God told him not to go. For believers, we have 1 Corinthians 10.13 that promises us that God will not tempt us beyond what we can bear. And so that speaks to the the callings that we receive and our optimal responses to those. We need to be careful with ourselves and others to know our limits. And maybe that's a big chunk of what's happening here with Isaac. 
Verses 3 and 4, we have God's familiar promises here, his presence, the descendants, the land, to be a blessing to others. It's cool that he's given this reminder during a trial, right, that he's going through difficult circumstances, and, and then God has him bank on the promises that have been made to Abraham and are reiterated to him. And ironically, it's connected to the famine. He's in the promised land, but doesn't seem all that promising at this point. But it also underlines these are not all physical blessings. It's not material blessings that Isaac, Abraham, and the like are focused on, right? It's the spiritual blessings. And also in verse 3, it's explicit that he's to stay in this trial for a while. And again, that's the way it is for us. We often look to escape things, but often the command is to stay in them and go through them in a way that glorifies God. Verses 3 through 5 make sure, clear that the covenant is conditional on God's promises and Abraham's obedience. Verse 5 goes to great lengths to underline Abraham's obedience, the extent of it, but overall still the picture is God's grace versus Abraham's merit. Part of that is again the irony that this is the very context in which Abraham was most disobedient and least faithful. Again, God's grace has been extended further. One wonders if this is a do-over opportunity for the family. Is it an opportunity for the redemption? Is it a picture of the sins of the father extended? We had the famine in chapter 12. We had an encounter with Gerar and Abimelech in chapter 20. In a way, we've got them combined here in the story of chapter 26 in the next generation. Okay, verses 7 through 11. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, because he was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She's really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, Anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. All right, so verse 7 gives us the sister-wife thing again, as we saw with Abraham. And interesting on the timing, it's just after God's promises have been delivered. So Abraham's obedience has been emphasized. God's going to give his promises again. And it underlines the limited faith and trust of Isaac. And we can laugh at him, but of course, it's very similar to what we do with God as well. It's interesting that he reacts rather than anticipating the problem. Uh, Abraham, remember, had anticipated things back in chapter 12, verse 11. So we have a picture here of of Isaac as less sophisticated and less farsighted than Abraham. I think the biggest point here, though, is, of course, the impact of the father's sins and behaviors as this sin goes generational, familial. Uh, Abraham had talked about a half-sister, and that's sort of a half-lie. Here we have no sister at all, so we've got a full-blown lie. And then looking forward to the next generation and the next story in chapter 27, Rebecca and Jacob, in a sense, learn lying from Isaac, or at least that's the picture we're given. Now, did Abraham and Sarah not share their failures? I think there's an interesting application there. How much do parents share with children is always uh, a tension and a dilemma. But whatever the case, it is tough to do the right thing when you perceive that your life is on the line and Isaac clearly feels threatened from this. Now, out of this family background, Esau is going to emerge as godless but moral, and Jacob will emerge as a believer with, but with lots of baggage. And so we, as we look at the transmission of the faith to the next generation, 
uh, it's not going to be that great, but we also wonder the extent to which that's the fault of Isaac. Now, verse 8, I've got titled, Oops, and so they finally get caught. It's interesting, it says, after a long time. How long? We don't know. But the deception worked for a while, and his concerns were likely unwarranted. We don't have any record of anyone approaching him for permission to marry his quote-unquote sister, but eventually he's caught. Now, Isaac's being affectionate with his wife in verse 8. The word in the NIV is caressing, but the Hebrew verb here is a form of to laugh or to mock, which is a play on his name. And in a sense, his action is mocking Abimelech and God's promises. He does this in broad daylight in front of the king. Along with the role of food in chapter 27 story, the Bible depicts Isaac as being driven, at least to some extent, by strong physical appetites by food in chapter 27 and by uh, sexual interest here in chapter 26. He's behaving in a way he should not in public, given the story that he's insisted on carrying. Now, Abimelech discovers this deception. In the earlier story, it required divine revelation. But that's because things went a lot further with both Pharaoh and Abimelech in the Abraham version of this story. Verses 9 and 10, there's a confrontation. Even the pagans realize this is wrong. Verse 9, Isaac's words are an insult. Uh, And then Abimelech points to the inherent selfishness of the words and the action in verse 10. Isaac implies they have no fear of God, but really Abimelech refers to his own guilt about moral standards. And so Isaac is insulting and in error here. Then we have verse 11 and the merciful response, but there's no grace here compared to what we saw from the previous generations of Abimelech in chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, and also a forceful order from Abimelech to his men. Now, why is this story in here? First, I think most obviously, it's that God protects the covenant man and woman again, although there is no direct intervention required here, given the way the circumstances play out. Second, Leon Cass plays a lot with the transmission of the faith angle here, and I think that's fascinating, especially with the story to follow. He speculates that Abimelech the dad is a naturally noble fellow, but he's unable to pass this on to his people or his son. And so this points to the importance of the divine covenant relationship and the effort independent of worldly goodness or natural character, to passing on the faith. Isaac's not going to be the most impressive guy, but he's going to do a better job of taking Abraham's faith forward than Abimelech the father to Abimelech the son here. And of course, then, it also sets up the next story, which we'll cover after our break. In the meantime, please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first segment, we covered the first half of chapter 26, which is the recasting of the Abimelech encounter and Pharaoh encounter that Abraham had back in chapters 12 and 20, and Isaac's version of that in chapter 26. Second half is the continuing encounter with Abimelech and Isaac over the subject of wells, and we'll start in verses 12 through 16. Isaac planted crops in that land in the same year, reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants, the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. So verses 12 and 13 start with the immediate subsequent financial blessings and the fulfilled promise that God had made to him. 
It's God's provision and his participation, right? He's participating in this with the crops and the livestock, but God is clearly providing beyond that in in an amazingly gracious manner. And this is all just after his lack of faith earlier in this chapter. So again, God's amazing grace in that light. Maybe God was waiting to bless him until the sin was in the open. And I think that's interesting. This prosperity sets in motion his return home on top of that. So there seems to be some cause and effect with what came before and what's going to come after that he gets to return home. Verse 14, envy. The object of envy is often good, but the results of envy are always bad. And we see that here as well. The subsequent action in verse 15, filling up Abraham's wells, which have become Isaac's. It's going to a lot of passive-aggressive trouble here. From verse 11, we know that they can't mess with Isaac and Rebekah directly, but they sure go about it indirectly here as well. It might seem childlike to throw a bunch of dirt in a well, but this is a serious action, really an act of war where water was such a crucial issue. And one also wants to know what happened to the oath that Abimelech had taken back in chapter 21 with Abraham. And so this foreshadows Egypt forgetting Joseph and enslaving the Israelites, and it's also an indication that this Abimelech is not as impressive as his father. And then verse 16, Isaac moves away at Abimelech's request. Abimelech here being gracious or practical, and the concern that's voiced is he'd become too powerful. So here it illustrates God's power, and it foreshadows Pharaoh's argument in Exodus 1.9 that Israel had become too powerful. In this context, it's connecting the wealth of earlier in the passage with the idea of power in earthly terms. And we look at this as strange, right? Because Isaac has shown no hint of providing trouble to Abimelech in this manner. Isaac, in fact, seems on the quiet and passive side. But the fact that he has a lot of resources is threatening to Abimelech, or at least that's what he voices. The other thing that's interesting here is the contrast with Abraham, that Isaac fails to anticipate the trouble. And this is very different than his father Abraham, most notably with Lot. Remember in that case that he anticipates the trouble with Lot and sends him off. Same thing with Abimelech when he has his encounter with him. And so we wonder again about transmission of the faith. Uh, How is Isaac doing here? He's not as impressive as Abraham uh, in a number of ways. The next two sons are going to be kind of a mess as well. And so it's going to fall to Jacob's 12 sons to find greatness in two of those sons, Judah and Joseph. And that's when the faith is transmitted most effectively. But Isaac is, you know, he's doing okay, but it's clearly not nearly as effective and impressive as his father, Abraham. All right, verses 17 through 25. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the very names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there, but the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Esek because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. So verses 18, 19, and 21, we have reopening and digging wells three times, but each time the herdsmen quarrel with him and claim the water. 
Isaac never protests, he just moves on. And so Isaac is a man of acquiescence or peace, depending on your reading of it. Certainly different than Abraham, right, who was more of the diplomat. But Isaac is a man of peace, persistence, faith in God, turning the other cheek and the like. I think, you know, there's a role for the diplomacy of Abraham and the peacemaking of Isaac. Both of those are fine, uh, and therefore different peoples given different temperaments. Like Abraham, he didn't fight for any of the promised land. He did not resist when his rights are violated. Isaac is a Christ-like figure in many ways. More passivity from Isaac here. He was reopening Abraham's wells, but it's his servants that dig the new wells. So there's nothing recorded that's done by his own hand. Verse 22, finally, the success at Rehoboth. Why did the herdsmen quit bothering him? Could be they was far enough away. Could be they realized there was no more need for fear. And maybe they were just had respect or were frustrated with his perseverance. I think there's a number of applications here as well. If we need we need to be people of perseverance, and uh, it may frustrate people into leaving us alone, or at least maybe they respect us. Uh, but that's what happens for Isaac finally here at Rehoboth. Then he moves to Beersheba, verses 23 through 25, and God shows up immediately to encourage him. An altar is built, which signifies permanence and victory. Worship, he pitches a tent, digs another well. This is God's second appearance to Isaac after chapter 26, verse 2, and it's his first explicit act of recognition of God, along with naming all of the wells that glorify God through their names. Two last thoughts here. Jonathan Sachs sees all of this as the origins of anti-Semitism, with persecution often practiced on, quote, a conspicuously successful minority, which will attract envy that may deepen into hate and provoke violence. That's what's happened here. And Sachs observes that they don't ask to share or sell the water. They don't ask him to teach them how to do it. They don't ask him to move on when they could assume his wells. They fill up the wells. And Sachs sees this as hate destroying the hater as well as the hated. They're attacking Isaac, but they're also in a way attacking themselves. They could have had the wells to themselves, but instead they fill them up and drive them off. The wells are also an interesting picture or metaphor here, right? Wells are always a picture of seeking truth and knowledge. And so when you're reopening an old well and opening a new well, it's a picture of both tradition and advance. Teasing out the metaphor, if you're digging new wells, you can usually expect opposition from the status quo. And the wells here also represent tangible evidence of God's unstoppable blessing. Imagine Isaac's faith in all this, bolstered after each trial by God's subsequent blessing. God keeps blessing him as Isaac runs into more and more difficulty. There's a fun little song by Paul Overstreet called Dig Another Well, and I'm going to read a few, a few bits of the lyrics here. When Ike went out for his morning drink, he got a dipper full of dirt and his heart did sink, but he knew it was the devil, so he said with a grin, God blessed me once, he can do it again. So when the rains don't fall and the crops all fail, and the cows ain't putting any milk in the pail... Don't sit around waiting for a check in the mail. Just pick up the shovel and dig another well. Pick up the shovel and dig another well. I think you could look at Isaac and and especially in comparison to his father, you know, think he's not that impressive. And maybe I've given you ammo for that. But I do want to leave you with Isaac's perseverance and his faith. And he's not the great man that Abraham was, but he is a man of faith and he's a man of perseverance. And those are to be applauded. All right, verses 26 through 33. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? 
They answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm, just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, We found water. He called it Sheba, and to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. So verses 26 and 27, company rolls in for a visit, pretty important company. 28 29, they could see the Lord was with Isaac through circumstances and or the way he carried himself, so that's pretty cool. They seek a treaty with him in verses 28 and 29. So again, we're back to this idea of personal, but the personal extends to the national and the political and the social. We're not just acting out our faith in a closet. Isaac is acting out his faith, and it has social, cultural, and political implications. Now, is there fear of Isaac or and or his God? We're not totally sure there, but it's at least good words. And they're starting anew after the previous oath had been violated. But the words in 29 are, are worrisome, right? Did not harm? Well, that's either a lie or blindness. You know, either they're purposely not telling the truth or not, they're not even aware of the damage they've caused. Again, Abimelech's faith back in chapter 20 and his righteousness have not transmitted particularly well to his son. Verse 31, the Philistines would later be troublemakers, but Isaac here is quick to make peace with his troublemakers. He's not trying to make a point. He's not going to argue with them. Instead, we have a feast, generosity, and forgiveness, great pictures of hospitality and grace. And then finally, the passage leads to further well success at Beersheba in verses 32 and 33. A couple more thoughts about Isaac as we wrap up this passage. So we conclude chapter 26 with his failure to succeed in his father's deception. He's both the product of his father and not as sharp as his father. But really, that's small potatoes, right? We're still wondering, will he be able to pass on the faith? If you look at the end of chapter 26, not a good sign. Esau marries some pagan women. They're a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. That's not good. Chapter 27's problems will be full-blown. We've got the story in chapter 25 in between to get to, but it's not looking great, really, for the transmission of the faith. Abimelech's not done a great job to his son. Abraham doesn't seem to be doing a great job with his son. You know, where do we go with this? The last thing is a couple of quotes from Cass and Sachs here about how Isaac deals with problems, moving on rather than dealing with them directly, but ultimately making peace. So Leon Cass says, like any man, Isaac must make his own way in the world. He must dig again the wells his father had dug. He must make again the treaties that his father had made. He even has to name the same city, Beersheba, but for a reason of his own. And he must fend for himself. But he's also a link in the covenantal chain. In this respect, Isaac is not simply on his own. Rather, he may, no, he must rely on the foundations laid by his father Abraham and seek to transmit them to his sons. And then Jonathan Sachs, he calls Isaac the least original of the patriarchs, but, quote, he did not strive to be original. He was content to be a link in the chain of generations, faithful to what his father had started. Isaac represents the faith of persistence, the courage of continuity. So it is with all great achievement, one part originality, nine parts persistence. And I think we look at the lives of Jacob and especially Abraham and strive for that greatness. But there is a call to be Isaac at times. And there's a call for some people to be Isaacs. They're not particularly original, but they can persist and they can pass on the faith and they can be great in the kingdom of God. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcast of previous shows are available on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. 
Welcome back to The Word Diet. Today's show, the first two segments, we covered chapter 26, Isaac's encounters with Abimelech. Now we back up, although moving in chronological order, to the famous story in the second half of chapter 25. We'll start with verses 19 through 21. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The first thing is the word account. We haven't seen that word in a while or talked about it. It's the eighth of 11 times that it appears in Genesis, so it introduces the ninth new section in Genesis of the 12. It's after Abraham's death in chapter 25, verse 11. You might have expected to hear about Isaac immediately, but instead it was the account of Ishmael, chapter 25, verses 12 through 18. We've already covered that. It's a little bit unsettling to move from Abraham to Ishmael, but really it's just the text and the narrative getting him out of the way, so to speak, before focusing on Isaac. 19 is also strange in that it has this redundant reference to the father, and it seems to be more about the father than the son, and that's not totally expected given the greatness of Abraham uh, compared to the son. The son's important, but it all begins with Abraham. And we might have expected to see Isaac's sons with this intro. This is the only case where the generations start with the one who has been generated. But it also immediately calls attention to this issue of transmission, transmitting the faith. It's not whether he will transmit to his sons yet, but will he transmit from his father Abraham. Verse 20 moves to his marriage, again a bit odd, but the story behind the son's appearance is obviously connected to the marriage, so that's okay. Verse 20, Isaac is 40 years old, which is a common biblical number, and as some commentators call it, a gestational period, 40 years before things really get rolling. 20 also has the reference to Paddan Aram, which is the same as chapter 24, verse 10's Ara Naharaim, which is in northwest Mesopotamia. The double mention of Aram and Aramean is troubling in terms of pedigree, but ironically, though an outsider, Rebekah will prove to be more devoted to God's ways than Isaac, as we'll see in the two stories to follow. Verse 21, barrenness shows up again, as it will did with Abraham and Sarah, and as it will with Jacob and Rachel to follow. Here it's reported as matter of fact. There's no blame or guilt or anything else. It just is. And then we have Isaac's prayer to the Lord on behalf of his wife and no recorded complaint from Rebecca. A couple interesting contrasts here. There's no recording of Abraham's prayer. Presumably he prays for his wife, but it's not mentioned there as it is for Isaac. And we had noisy complaining by Sarah and later with Rachel, including temptations to use concubines. And there's none of that here as well. So again, Isaac and Rebekah look relatively impressive compared to Abraham and Jacob to follow. We saw Isaac's love for Rebekah at the end of chapter 24, verse 67. And that parallels Christ with the church. And Isaac clearly loves and petitions for his wife in this chapter. I think the other interesting thing here is to consider the role of prayer within God's promises. Remember, God had promised Isaac a child and many descendants. And so you might say, well, why pray? God's already promised it. But Matthew Henry says, God's promises must not supersede, but encourage our prayers and be improved as the ground of our faith. Now, there are times when such prayer is faithless. If God has promised something, the prayers should not be as if we're trying to pull a lever on a vending machine. 
but instead the prayers are faithful and they correspond to or are connected with the promises that God has made. Verse 21, we have a seemingly quick answer from God as if there's an immediate cause and effect. Most of the patriarch's children directly come from God's grace and his hands. It's clear to them and to us that this is God's provision and their participation. But the narrative in 21 is a bit misleading because in verse 26, we learn that Isaac is 60 years old, and we know that he was 40 when they got married. So it's 20 years before the sons were born. Is the prayer in the middle or late in the 20-year period? Is this a one-time prayer? Is it frequent? Is it continual? Is God waiting for Isaac to ask, or is this just the way of God's timing? Similar to Abraham's trials, but the wrestling is not really recorded except for this prayer. Life seems to be easier for Isaac, at least compared to Abraham and his experiences in chapter 22. Of course, Isaac has had his own challenges in chapter 22, but there's not as much recorded here with Isaac as there was with Abraham. Verses 22 and 23, the babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, verse 22 has jostled, but the Hebrew term here is stronger. Something beyond babies kicking or throwing an elbow in the womb, it signals that something is odd, and that's why Rebecca reaches out to God in prayer. Their struggle begins in the womb, and so we have a prenatal sibling rivalry, which is certainly reminiscent of Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. The trouble with barrenness she had is replaced by trouble in the womb, and it will point to even more serious troubles later in the narrative, but at least they're healthy. That's a good thing. And I think it gets to a nice application to our wishes and God's answers that provide their own discomforts, whether they're within God's will or not. We look for answers, but we usually want them in our timing and in our way. And Rebecca has received an answer to her prayer for kids, but things are getting interesting and will get more interesting still. Her inquiry in verse 22 is encouraging her dependence on God. She doesn't go to pagan gods here. Is she curious? Is she bothered? It's not completely clear. But Isaac and Rebecca both look quite faithful and pious here. Uh, not going to be so much in what follows, but at least in this early uh, story, they look impressive in their faith. Verse 23 provides a future political answer stemming from verse 22's present and personal question. And again, we have this point that our faith is not simply about the present and the personal. There are future and political and social aspects to our lives that God is interested in. Now, the interpretation of verse 23 is that there's two nations, one stronger, and that the older will serve the younger. So first, there are two nations, two sons, First of all, this is probably a lot more than they asked for. They just wanted a child, and here they are getting two. Now, why is it two sons rather than one? We know from what follows, this will help distinguish between those who do and do not want to pursue God. We'll see that in Esau and Jacob. Certainly enhances Jacob's character to have his brother Esau around. He's going to disappear for 20 years. He's going to be alone by himself twice. He's going to be developed because of his brother Esau, which is interesting. And the chosen one will again be second. Beyond that, the twinning underlines God's sovereignty in choosing the one who is chosen. The text says one will be stronger, more likely the younger, which is implied by the word serve, which uh, follows up after 
this distinction about stronger and weaker, but it's not totally clear. It's going to lead to struggle rather than destruction. What sort of strength is interesting? Are we talking about natural physical strength, artificial military strength? Is this a personal strength or political strength? Is it supplemented by spirit, wit, tenacity, courage, etc.? The rest of the story is going to point to the value of more than mere physical strength. In any case, it seems to imply that one will be involved in transmitting the faith. Then the text gets more specific, that the older and the younger. It's funny that Esau is an older brother, but surely not by much, and so we have the role of providence, right? Until the very last minute, it's not clear who's coming out of the womb first, but it turns out to be Esau, the older, the one who will not follow God closely. Now, all of this points to the common biblical reversal of the typical worldly custom to put the older over the younger. So this shows God's hand, and it's in contrast to the natural worldly development, how the world usually does things. Ian Thomas points out that this is the case for Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, Ephraim and Manasseh, Saul and David, the Old and the New Covenant, the Jew and the Gentile. Matthew Henry says, In the struggle between grace and corruption in the soul, grace, the younger, shall certainly get the upper hand at last. Now, what's Rebecca supposed to do with all of this? Is it predestination? Is it implied counsel? Is God preparing her for future decisions? She comes to God with a question, and she leaves with more questions. And did she talk to Isaac about this? If not, why not? Is this the silence of Rebecca? We've talked about the silence of Adam and other characters here, but there's nothing recorded that Rebecca talks with Isaac about it. If she did, it seems like Isaac didn't listen. We'll compare Isaac to uh, Jesus later on, and so Uh, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, do a better job of communicating than Isaac and Rebekah do. Maybe Isaac is satisfied merely to pray for a child. Maybe they're not quite on the same page here. I think the other interesting thing is the difficulty generally of handling revelation to others. When God reveals something to me, how's my wife supposed to handle that? When When God reveals something to us, how does that connect to our kids, right? We receive the revelation. How do we pass that on to those around us? Leon Cass says here, seems to work through the efforts of Rebecca herself. She alone hears the prophecy. She alone must try to discern its meaning. She alone will prove responsive to the struggles in her household. She alone will be responsible for taking the measures necessary to achieve the predicted or desired result. She knows from her troubled pregnancy that something is up. She seems to hear, look, you face a difficult choice between two alternatives. Only one of your two sons will be right for the task. A choice must be made whether you like it or not, and you are the one who's going to have to make it. Whatever she finally makes of the prophecy, Rebecca comes to childbirth with her eyes on the long-range view. In this respect, she differs from her husband, whose preferences will be governed by more immediate satisfactions. I'm not sure I agree with everything Cass says here, but he does make the point that Rebecca coming into childbirth is clearly focused on the long run, where Isaac, not so much, as we'll see uh, with his fixation on food and Esau. Verses 24 through 26, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So verse 24, twins as prophesied. Verse 25, we're introduced to Esau, whose name means hairy. He's also called Edom, which means red or ruddy. It's a term related to the earth. And the area of Sair and Edom, where Esau later lived and settled. Both terms imply he's born like a man. He's rough and ready. 
He's a man's man, you might say. A hunter, he's into women. And most troubling, he has a tendency to be independent. Verse 26, Jacob is holding Esau's foot. He grasps the heel, is what his name means. Figuratively, he trips people up or he deceives. So Esau looks stronger and exhibits physical strength by emerging first. But Jacob is, in Cass's words, energetic, ambitious, physically weaker, but quite literally manipulative. Cass sees him as even struggling to be the first one out of the womb. From the very beginning, Jacob is trying to get the blessing, the birthright. So hostility is the norm between the two, and later it would be the case that their descendants would struggle, the Israelites and the Edomites. Jacob and Esau here are a type of Cain and Abel. And some commentators have used this as a picture of wrestling with sin through passages like Galatians 5, 16 and 17 and Luke 12, 51. Also points to the other heel reference, the first messianic prophecy back in Genesis 3, verse 15. Let's take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the last segment, we talked about the birth of Jacob and Esau. That was chapter 25, verses 19 through 26. That takes us to 27 and 28. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So verse 27 gives us their occupations and notes that their differences grow as they get older. They start off different at birth, and the differences just get bigger. Similar to Cain and Abel, Cain and Esau come off as more impressive in a worldly sense, but it's going to be Jacob who turns out to be the craftier hunter, so to speak, and more appropriate to carry on God's ways, similar to righteous Abel, although Jacob seems to be much more of a mess. 28 lays out the loyalties and or unfortunate favoritisms which apparently follow the differences. Isaac's based on what he liked to eat and maybe what to do. It implies that his stomach was his God, reminiscent of Philippians 3.19. Cass says it's a function of pure appetite. It implies some significant character problems here, right, that this is the basis for his preference. The phrase here is who had a taste for wild games, literally for the game in his mouth. And the the picture here is as a lion would bring home prey and put food in the mouth of its cubs. But if that's the case, the father-son roles are being reversed. It's as if uh, he's a lioness uh, here. And so it's the son bringing home food to the, the father, which is backwards from what it would usually be. So it turns out that Isaac prefers the wrong son for bad reasons. And that's made obvious by the following story. If he knew about the, the revelation to Rebecca, that's really troubling. Matthew Henry says he seemed to have forgotten how God had determined the matter at the birth of these, his sons. This should have been a rule to him all along, but he was rather swayed by natural affection and by general custom. Also seems quite similar to Isaac and Ishmael, but that was handled quite differently by Abraham. Burton Vysotsky says, Red and Uncle Ishmael were two of a kind. Is it any wonder then that in the absence of older brother Ishmael, Isaac transfers his affections for the macho man to the rough and tumble son? What amazes me is not so much Isaac's short-sighted preference for the son who brings home the bacon, so to speak, is that given his own father Abraham's apparent even-handedness between his sons, Isaac does not in the same way reproduce it. Omission may be also interesting here. There's nothing said about circumcision, as we saw for Isaac back in chapter 21, verse 4. Now, Rebecca's motives are not explained explicitly. Perhaps silence on this is good news, certainly in contrast to Isaac's base motives. But it could be based on who helped around the house, if she's a bit biased. 
or hopefully it's based on who would inherit the blessing and the birthright, if clear from the prophecy that it's his destiny. Or even it's okay to think about who should inherit the birthright and blessing, if clear by character, and we'll see more of that soon enough. In the story that follows in verses 29 through 34, Cass says, you ask why? Well, listen to this tale and you will understand. The next story is going to make clear who should inherit the birthright and the blessing. Now, what were the dynamics here? Were Isaac and Rebecca responding to the other's favoritism? Sometimes a parent picks up for the the child based on what the other is doing. But in any case, there's some unfortunate ramifications brewing and surely manifest throughout and climaxing in chapter 27, which we'll get to next week. In all of this, Cass notes, nature is not a reliable ally in the work of transmitting the faith. There's hostility between the two sons, and later we learn that the firstborn may well not be the best one for the covenant. Cass observes, the natural prejudice in favor of the firstborn, as expressed by Isaac, often works through parental pride and favoritism to ensure that the firstborn will turn out to be the wrong one. And whatever happens here, Esau is not the right one. He's not interested in the things of God. Cass notes that the twins emphasize, and in his words, embarrass the arbitrariness of birth order, especially here, again, the two are, in essence, born as a package. They're born at the same moment. And so society and culture put the first son first. But spiritually, there's no reason for that sort of favoritism, and God continues to overturn that by promoting the second son here. So the climactic story, verses 29 through 34, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom or red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Verse 29, the word for cooking literally means boiling. And so there's an overflow that would spread the aroma and make it even more tempting. It's also perhaps used to imply that Jacob was going beyond appropriate bounds. It's boiling over, boiling out. Verse 30, a passionate request and his first recorded words leads to Esau to say, let me have, literally let me gulp down, the only use of it in the Bible. And it's a word typically used in the Hebrew for cattle. So not a very pretty word for Esau to use here. And the reference to Red or Edom uh, here gives him a new nickname. Red also connects to pictures of blood and hunter. So Red uh, is, is a good term for Esau. Now the birthright in verse 31 includes inheritance rights and leadership responsibilities of the firstborn. That's in contrast to the double blessing or portion of material wealth that's going to be addressed in chapter 27. That's going to be a very different story. But the birthright here means a ton given his father. Think about Abraham, Isaac, and eventually Jacob. This is not just any inheritance rights and leadership responsibility. This is one under the covenant of God. As the NIV Study Bible puts it, at the heart of this birthright were the covenant promises Isaac inherited from Abraham. This is a very, very big deal. It was given to Esau by past providence, but Jacob's by prophecy and now by his own efforts. The key is at the end of this passage, verse 34, Esau despised his birthright. In other words, he found it to be of little value. Now we see this in his words, verse 32, what good is the birthright to me? Given his mortality and his short run perspective, his focus is eat, drink, and be merry. 
And then we have not just his words, but his deeds. He's willing to trade it for some bread and some lentil stew. He has no sign of understanding, no change of mind. He's perfectly willing to trade off the birthright for a bowl of soup. As Leon Cass says, it's a unique instance of editorial comment. In no other place in Genesis does the text itself pronounce judgment on the deeds of any character. Now, the writer of Hebrews is even more harsh here, calling it godless. Esau is godless in Hebrews 12.16 because he's improperly weighing the spiritual and the physical. The Life Application Bible says Esau showed complete disregard for the spiritual blessings that would have come his way if he had kept it. It's also clearly an example of small short-run benefits versus huge long-run cost. He's hungry, but he's also exaggerating it. He's like he's saying, I'm starving to death. The NIV Student Bible says he's letting his hunger overwhelm his concern for things of lasting value. You know, in in the context of public policy, we see a lot of this in personal decisions where it's short-run benefits versus long-run costs. In all of this, it reminds us of Eve's fruit decision. So we have Esau's stew decision. Matthew Henry says this is as dear a morsel as ever was eaten since the forbidden fruit. But the bottom line here is he spurns the long-term opportunities and responsibilities of the birthright, family leadership, offerings, sacrifices, responsibility to transmit the faith, and other duties toward God. Passing along the faith requires a long-run view, and Esau does not have that. Now, the funny thing here is that Esau is more moral than Jacob, even at the end of his life, but still he's apparently independent of God. Ian Thomas says Esau rejected God's means of grace. He repudiated man's need of God's intervention. This is the basic attitude of sin. It makes God irrelevant to the stern business of living and gives to man a flattering sense of self-importance. So Esau may be the better man in a worldly sense, but he's uninterested in the things of God and therefore God less, God less, less of God, not interested in the things of God. Now the passage is used later to talk about predestination and election, but there's clearly choice here as well. Passages like Malachi 1, 2, and 3, Romans 9 through 11, where Paul writes about this at great length, underline God's election and God using our choices. And that's the case here. There may have been a sense of election, not that Esau is condemned uh, to a lack of salvation, but what in any case, right, whatever election is here, there clearly is choice, and Esau is not choosing the things of God. The other funny thing here is that Esau's supposed physical starvation is indicative of, of his real spiritual starvation, and it has a parallel irony in Isaac's food-based favoritism, right? That he likes Esau because he cranks out food for him. Cass observes here, Isaac preferred his firstborn for the sake of tasty food. His firstborn, however, had contempt for the rights and duties of the firstborn, which he spurned for the sake of common food. All this is ironic given Esau's relationship to his father. And again, we're back to this question of Isaac's inability to pass on things of eternal significance, even to the son he favors. You would hope or think that Isaac would be able to pass on the things of faith to Esau, the son that he's most involved with, but there's an utter failure of that here. Now, as economists, the first thing we see here is mutually beneficial trade. This gets economists very excited. There's an exchange of something not worth much to Esau, but valued highly by Jacob and vice versa, right? The bowl of soup, objectively, is not all that much, but Esau shows us how he values things. He wants the soup and the bread 
over the birthright. Jacob has produced something that's of some value, but he gets in exchange something of much greater value to him. This points to the role of taste and preferences, and economists talk about this all the time, but it's a voluntary trade. There's no fraud. There's no coercion, right? There's nothing going on like that. Jacob is neither forceful nor deceptive here. There's going to be trouble in chapter 27, but there's none of that here. Now, you could argue, well, there's some monopoly power. He's got food and he's hungry, but really that's not the case. Esau has access to food with just a little more perseverance or patience. And so Jacob's monopoly power, so to speak, is very modest. Both would have known what the birthright entailed, Maybe some sense of difference in the benefits and costs, but not enough to get excited about. And this had probably been talked about for some time. Verse 27, they're old enough. Verse 31, they seem prepared. Esau shows surprise later in chapter 27, but there's no sense of that surprise here. I think you could look at this as, you know, wondering why Jacob is not just charitable and gracious. Just give Esau the food. You know, Esau's weakened by physical vulnerability and Jacob's taking advantage of him. Burton Visotsky runs with this and says it's hard to decide who's the bigger jerk, Esau or Jacob. But Jacob pretends to a refinement that Esau is not only lacking but does not even notice. The Bible is careful to characterize Esau as a boar. Visotsky then notes that the term for asking for the meal is used for animal fodder and, and the meal sequence is translated, he ate, drank, rose, left. And he concludes, this crudeness must serve as a goad to wily Jacob. How can this boar, he thinks, have any clue what the birthright means? And so, eyeing God's promised blessing, Jacob takes action, much as Grandpa Abraham did, and he obtains the birthright. But the blessing would come to him despite his schemes, despite his human efforts. This action would prove insufficient. It's going to take chapter 27's Halloween episode to finish that off. And ultimately, it's by God's hand and his grace. But for us in the long view, it beautifully illustrates why Jacob might be fit for this, although it's still early, and especially why Esau is not. For Jacob at this point, it's doubtful that his motives or ends are pious, but he's probably more interested in the benefits than the cost, but Esau is not interested at all. I think the things of God are too often handled in irreverent or insincere ways, but that's better than treating them with no value. Highly valued and improperly sought speaks to motive, method, and timing, but those can be redeemed. What can you do with apathy? Jacob is interested. Jacob is passionate for the things of God. Even when pursuing it improperly, Esau just doesn't care. Whether it's out of independence, pride, or apathy, those are out of God's reach. God cannot make us be interested in him or his kingdom or his things, his blessings. Cass notes that there are two problems here. How do you replace birth order with merit? And without fratricide, Uh, as Cain and Abel. But here Esau is willing, so so far so good there. And then with the support and the blessing of a father who foolishly prefers the wrong son, what's the out there? Jacob has the birthright, but what about the blessing? As Cass notes, Jacob's solution is inadequate. Only Isaac can solve the problem of the generations of Isaac with some extraordinary help from his wife. That story falls to next time in chapter 27, so we're going to end things here. Lord, help us to have the passion of Jacob to pursue the things that you have, that you offer us. Help us to use the right motives, the right timing, and all that. But we want to start with a passion for the things of God. Lord, help us to have that. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember that previous episodes are available on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Interact with me on Facebook, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.